So let's go ahead and start uh, with a word of prayer tonight, and we'll get into our, our last topics for this course. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness. Lord, I thank you for this class and for their persevering through the uh, uh, through the uh, difficult times here in order to uh, learn uh, from your word. Lord, I ask that you would reward their their faithfulness to you and their and their zeal to to know more about uh, about you, your plan, your work, uh, the way the things you're doing in this world. And Lord, I ask that we might be the better for it, that we might better serve you within the life of the uh, local church, uh, and uh, that uh, uh, we'd be able to go from this place and be better informed as we serve uh, you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are looking tonight at the doctrines of preservation and perseverance, which in some ways are the same uh, topic, really looked at from two different perspectives. I say here that the certainty of the believer's final salvation can be looked at in two ways. From God's perspective, he is guaranteeing the final salvation of all true believers by a continuous operation of his grace, and this is known as preservation, perhaps more popularly known as eternal security. So we're going to talk about the eternal security of the believer once uh, with the golden chain, as we call it, uh, in Romans 9 has begun, uh, it will be brought to its conclusion. From man's perspective, however, the believer must and will continue in faith, sound doctrine, and good works until the day of final redemption. He does this because God is at work in him to do these things. So God is preserving by means of our perseverance. So they go hand in hand. Note the uh, following four theological positions uh, that you that are represented uh, within the broad Christian community and perhaps uh, with the acquaintances that you know and see if we can't defend uh, the last of these. The Roman Catholic view denies effectively both preservation and perseverance. Salvation is always tentative. You never know for sure whether you are going to be preserved and whether you are going to persevere. It can be lost at any time uh, due to the commission of a mortal sin. And uh, there's, there's, there's always this tentativeness. In fact, that's part of I, 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 the genius, if I can put it that way, of the Roman Catholic position. It's how it maintains the faithfulness of its members, in part, it's by fear, okay? You've got to be close to the church and receiving the means of continuing grace in order to be preserved in the faith because salvation is in the church. And if you drift away from the church, salvation it becomes elusive and, and ultimately can be lost. Wesleyan Arminians deny absolute preservation and perseverance. So the emphasis here is the absolute nature of it. They maintain that per- perseverance must occur in order for someone to secure final salvation, but they deny that it necessarily will occur. You can actually, by your own decision, walk away from the faith. So salvation can be lost, I say here, to willful sin or to apostasy. So it is possible, uh, you sometimes hear, to have present assurance. You can have present 
uh, uh, preservation, but there can be a time in the future where you would go ahead and lose those things. So this position, I think, consistently preserves the concept of absolutely human free will. If, in fact, a person can freely choose God, he can freely unchoose him as well. So, and so most true Arminians, uh, or full Arminians, Wesleyan Arminians believe that one can lose his salvation, uh, by an act of apostasy. There is a form of antinomian Arminianism, and it's, this is sort of a name I've given to it. This is not an official category here. That affirms preservation, but denies perseverance. In some ways, this is a, one of the more, most insidious, uh, items on the list. For these, salvation can never be lost by those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but it is not necessary to persevere, to continue in the faith. So they inconsistently maintain absolutely free human will in choosing God, but once a person has chosen God, he can never renege on that choice. In fact, I've heard it illustrated this way. If you get on an airplane... You're going to go from Detroit to uh, somewhere warm, Phoenix. Uh, and uh, if you, you hop on the plane there, you get on, you, you, you get your ticket, you get on the plane. If you get on the plane, you might want to get off at some point. I have no idea why you'd want to get off if you're going from Detroit to Phoenix here. But if you want to get off, you can't. They won't let you. They won't open up the door for you. Uh, and so you're going to get there whether you want to or not. And that illustration has been used uh, to speak to the idea of salvation. You get your ticket punched, you, you, you receive salvation, and you get on the plane to heaven, and uh, you may decide after the fact that that was a bad decision. I, I, want, I, I want nothing to do with God anymore. I, have, I want nothing to do with Christianity from this point forward. Well, that's too bad. You, you, you are, you're on the plane and you can't get off and you're going to get there whether you want to or not. Now, this is, this is not only a, I think an inconsistent form of Arminianism, but a, a particularly insidious form of, of, uh, of Arminianism. But it's, uh, somewhat common, uh, in, even in fundamentalist circles. Calvinists, on the other hand, and this is where we're going to Park here, affirm both preservation and perseverance as necessary counterparts to each other. God preserves all genuine believers, but preserves them by means of preservation that must and will manifest itself in a spirit-led life of continued faith, sound doctrine, and progressively good works. Now, that, again, now, now, oftentimes when people hear that, they say, so we have to be perfect? And the answer, of course, is no, 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 no. We don't have to be perfect, but there has to be progress. We can never flatline. Okay? We, can, we can never just completely lose interest in God and in the church and uh, just, just sit at home week by week and never have any participation in the life of God. If you do that, then that betrays not that you've lost your salvation or that you failed to persevere but have been preserved, but rather that you never had faith in the first place. Okay, In fact, the book of Hebrews, I think, is largely written uh, to forestall that 
prospect. Okay, so uh, the author of Hebrews is constantly warning people that if they fall away, if they if they if they walk away from the faith, they apostatize. Then there's then then they have to really be fearful of their spiritual condition. They they because they're they're betraying the likelihood that they are not believers at all. Okay, so this syllabus I say here maintains that preservation and perseverance necessarily exist and mutually exist. So God's preserving grace inevitably causes us to persevere. I say here, not automatically. We talked about that last week with sanctification, right? It's not as though we don't have to do anything. We have to participate in the life of God. We have to give all diligence. We have to work hard in order to persevere. But it's not something we're doing in in some sort of an independent sense. The reason we're doing it is because we have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of God dwelling in us. And so from this point forward, nothing we do is ever properly independent of God. Uh, God is uh, part and parcel with what we are due. Nonetheless, it's not just God acting. It's us acting in cooperation with God. And so hence the idea here that preservation and perseverance are necessary counterparts of each other. And I think we see this reflected in these two verses here in Jude 21 and 24. Keep yourselves, Jude says, in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And a couple of verses later, because he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So you can see the, 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 uh, the, the, the cooperation here that takes place between the believer and God. God is preserving us and he is causing us uh, to persevere. Okay. Does that make sense? Follow? We're going to start here then with the doctrine of preservation or eternal security as it often is often called. I've defined it here as God's guarantee of the final salvation of all true believers by a continuous operation of his grace. Key verse here, 1 Peter 1 5, those chosen and born again are protected by the power of God through faith. Again, okay, again, it's it's not just God working, but God working through us, through the faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So preservation here deals only with those who are truly saved, not just professing Christians. So the illustration that we used earlier, someone hopping on a plane, getting their ticket punched, and being coerced to get to their destination doesn't work, because preservation deals only with those who are truly saved. The idea here is that the person who gets on the plane, uh, and he's, and, and, and doesn't want to get to the, his destination really never was saved in the first place. Okay. So it's not just a matter of professing Christ. Not, it's not the, a statement that everyone who has said a prayer or has made a profession of faith is automatically saved and will be preserved to the last day, but rather those who have been genuinely born of God born from above, uh, will be preserved by God. Secondly, here B, uh, by God's preserving work, believers are kept in a state of ultimate security, but not in a state of perfect obedience. And this is important for us because I, I think very uh, the, the, the 
the impulse to perfection has a has a long history in the life of the church. Uh um and uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why I wrote a lot, a lot of my dissertation work was was centered on this. There's been a great work done by uh BB Warfield, your own uh uh Bill Combs has done a lot of work here in this this idea here. Um but uh, this this idea of perfection has has sort of wormed itself into the life of the church and it has for for generations and so so when we hear things like okay the believer will persevere people say oh well that means we have to be perfect no 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 that's 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 not at all what is meant by perseverance in fact scripture is replete with with instructions that say we'll never be perfect. And if you think you have no sin after you've become a believer, you delude yourself, right? First John one says, uh, but he adds, if you confess your sins as a perse- persevering believer will, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what perseverance looks like. It's not absolute perfection, but a, a but a continuous return to God in repentance and slow inexorable growth in righteousness. So it doesn't deny the possibility of temporary backsliding, uh, perseverance. And you say, well, you know, how long can I go uh, uh, with uh, 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 with in sin and still be confident of my salvation? Well. I mean, we, we look at situations like David, right? You know, the, uh, the great King David, man after God's own heart, uh, you know, killed a man, had relations with his wife and had a child. And when does he repent? Well, right about the time the baby's born. So, so here's a guy who goes nine months without confessing his sin. And he's a man after God's own heart. He's considered by God to have persevered. And so we have, we have examples of people who spend, you know, perhaps an extended time, uh, in, 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 in their sin and not, and not, uh, uh, sinning. But the fact is the longer you stay in there, the, the, the less confidence that you ought to have that your salvation is secure. And, uh, so we, we should, we should, we should very much strive to uh, not stay in that state. Uh, for a long time, but uh, the the process of sanctification does allow uh, that people will sin and even remain in a state of unconfessed sin for for a period of time, and yet not be uh, thought of as insecure in their salvation. But as Hebrews says, you know, Hebrews ten says that if we, for instance, abandon the faith, if if we if if we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and that doesn't mean you skip church one Sunday, otherwise we'd be all in trouble, right? Nobody's going to church these days, right? But it's it's not that if we skip church, but if we abandon the assembly, we 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 stop attending, we stop coming to the Zoom meetings, uh, we just sort of isolate and and never have any interaction with the church. If we do this, what does he say? You 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 cast off your confidence. And uh, we're going to see as we talk about assurance later on next week uh, that that's what happens. Okay, when we are in sin, there's there's a mechanism built in that causes us to say, you know, I'm sinning, 
and this oughtn't be. And so the longer we persist in it, the more anxious we should become uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to make things right with God. Uh, because to the degree that we are engaged in sin, our confidence, our assurance is going to sag. And that's good. You know, that's, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, because if we think we have a hundred percent assurance all the time, even when we're sinning, I think what's that, what that would, uh, cause us to do then is to uh, sink into sin. And that, that's never God's intent. Okay. So, so preservation does, uh, allow for backsliding. We sometimes call it or, or in temporary bouts of sin. Uh, but those things will not persist, continue. And in fact, uh, if First Corinthians 11 is our guide, those who do persist in this, those who linger in sin for a long time, who in fact are believers, are sometimes taken. Right? They 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 are weak and sickly, and even sleep. They're taken by God. They're chastened, even to the point of death, in order uh, that they would not apostatize. Okay. Let her see here, preservation then is wholly the work of God's grace. It's not human effort that keeps us saved. However, we should keep in mind that believers are kept through faith and not irrespective of faith. And so this preservation is permanent, as First John, First Peter says, we are protected until the last time, until the end. Okay, questions up till this point? I have a quick question. Yeah, go ahead. You just used the statement that uh, God might take a believer home before they apostatize. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that say that the person's lost the faith then? Yeah, I, I, yeah, that, that's it's an interesting topic here. Um, in fact, you know, if you, again, I'll bring his name up again. Bill Combs actually wrote his his uh, his. Uh, his uh, THM thesis on this topic, the sin unto death. Um, and as I understand it, first John speaks of this sin unto death. So does first Corinthians 11, right? So if, if we, if we don't properly regard the Lord's body in the, the communion, the exercise of communion, that is we, we come to the table in an unworthy manner that is not regarding our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we we are we are doing injury to the body of Christ, and for this reason, it says here, people become sick and even die. Now, I don't think that that means they lose their salvation. I think what we have here is an instance of what First John speaks of as the sin unto death, uh, which is a an extreme form of chastening that God inflicts upon a true believer in order to prevent them from apostatizing. Um, in fact, I think I might have told this story earlier. I, you know, When I was going through college, uh, one of my mentors in the faith uh, was, uh, uh, you know, he, really, he really established me in the faith. He really, he really discipled me, uh, helped me to, uh, to advance in my, in my worship and my uh, understanding of what it is to be a Christian. He, he was, Good influence on me uh, for three years there, and uh, shortly after I graduated from college, um, uh, he was supposed to be uh, singing at a, a friend's wedding, and I got a call like three days before the wedding, 
and uh, my friend was frantic. He said, you know, the fellow who's going to be uh, singing at my wedding, he's, he's apostatized. He's, <laughs> he left his wife, left his family, m- moved to California chasing after a girl, and he was going to sing at my wedding. Can, can you and your wife come and sing for us? And I was, I mean, I was at once honored and just really distraught because uh, here's a, here's a person that I had learned much from. And I, I, I had, I was stunned to think that he might have apostatized. I, I sent him a, a letter too. I, uh, and, uh, you know, we had, we had some exchange and he was very, unrepentant he was cordial nice he was thankful that i cared but but he was unwilling to repent and it was really it was really it really bothered me a lot and i remember my wife and i after about oh i think about nine months maybe a year uh we we decided we decided that we were going to pray that uh, if he wasn't going to repent that that god would chasten him in a in an extreme way so that you know, so that and 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 that he would re- you know re- receive in him a great chastening, Lord, even unto death. And it was it was stunning because a, a, a couple of days later, I get this phone call. You know, so and so, I'm not going to say his name here. He had a massive heart attack and he died. He was in his forties, and I was like, I, I, it was it was a startling thing to me. Uh, but I, I, I walked away from that with the thought, you know, maybe I will see Ron again in heaven, you know, and, and, and had he persisted in his, in his non-persevering state, I think I would have had to have concluded that he was, he was faking it all along, that he wasn't a true believer. But actually, I have some hope now that uh, maybe I will see him again in heaven. That perhaps he he did receive in himself this this punishment, this 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 death in response to his sin. I don't know if that's true. I mean, it's I'm, I'm speculating. I did, I don't know the mind of God, uh, but I'd like to think that that's true. Um, and uh, so again, there's there's. Just because you sin and sin grievously and die doesn't mean you've apostatized, doesn't mean you failed to persevere. In fact, I was, you know, I was, I remember going to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, teach a number of Chinese folks. I taught these notes, uh, to, uh, this, these folks in China and they had a very Wesleyan idea of preservation and they were, they believed that if someone sinned, and never confessed his sin and then died, he went to hell. And, and they were sort of paralyzed by this. They were really worried that they could sin and, and, and not confess their sin and, and not get to heaven. That's not how it works, right? Uh, it, it's, it's not as though if you, you know, you, you sin tonight and then you have a heart attack while you're sleeping that, well, okay, you're, you're in hell now. No, God preserves you, and uh, and it's a preservation that takes place through perseverance. But this perseverance is not perfection. Again, that's why we have to make sure we don't understand uh, perseverance to mean perfection. Because if we do, we do end up with this idea that if somebody sins and dies, he must have apostatized. And I don't think that's a necessary conclusion. I don't know if that helps. I guess I'm stuck on the word apostasy, where you can apostatize. Because it seems like if you apostatize, you lose your salvation. 
rather than you never had it in the first place. Well, yeah, and, and and perhaps the word is the wrong word to use. I mean, it's a word that we've used for years. Uh, but and I and I, I agree that there's a tension with that word here. Someone who apostatizes is one who turns his back on the Christian faith entirely. Um, and I, you're 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 probably right. If somebody says, you know, I hate God. I I don't have, I want nothing to do with him. I, I repudiate the Christian faith, then, you know, that, that could be a good indication that that person was, was never a believer. Um, and so a sin like that, you know, made in a moment, uh, could indicate that someone was not a believer. But if someone drifts into sin over the course of time, fails to confess his sin and then dies. I don't think we can just conclude, oh, he's in hell, uh, just because that is true. And I think that gives us sometimes reason to hope, uh, in, in situations that, uh, that are, that are less than ideal when someone passes. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, that helps because a lot of the reading I've done, it's Calvinistic, but they, Use the word apostasy a lot, and yeah, to me that that throws me a little bit as far as the explanation. Right, okay. right. To apostatize is to evidence that you were never a believer. To drift into sin or backslide and not confess is not necessarily apostasy. It could be, uh, but it, it is not necessarily. This this is could be just one of the ebbs and flows of of the sanctification process. Thank you. Okay, well, let's look at the biblical basis for preservation, and it's abundant, and that I think that's a refreshing thing uh, that there is a there is a confidence that we can have that God is keeping us. Uh, John six thirty nine, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I will lose none, but I will raise Him up on the last day. And verse 37, right there in that context here, I will never cast out the one who comes to me by faith. And it, it's not, that's not so much if someone responds to an invitation, I won't, I won't, uh, deny him entry, but rather once a person comes, I will never get rid of him. He, I'm never going to throw him off the ship, uh, once, uh, once he's in. So those whom God has given to Christ will never be lost. God will raise us up on the last day. John 10, uh, perhaps, if I can put it out here, probably the most well-known text on eternal security, uh, but uh, certainly not the only one. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So no no one can remove us from the love of God. And that's the theme then of Romans 8 as well. Who can separate us from this love of God that has taken hold of us? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... No, no, no matter what our circumstances may end up being, and you know we think 2020 is bad, but you know that in the history of the church, things have been worse. You know, things have been really bad. 
really bad for Christians. But in all these things, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Because I'm convinced neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, probably, principalities. These are uh, you know, ranks of demons, perhaps. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if God has, if God's love has laid hold of us, it is impossible that we should possibly, we would ever be able to be removed from that love. Romans 11, 29, and the context here is of, of election and particularly the election of national Israel. But I think in principle, it applies here. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So once he has called us to salvation, that calling will never be rescinded. It is irrevocable. First Corinthians 1, 8, 9, our Lord Jesus Christ will confirm you to the end. Ephesians 4, by the Holy Spirit, you are sealed for the day of redemption. And we uh, find uh, uh, much of this idea of the Holy Spirit being a seal or a guarantee, a down payment of our redemption. The idea here is what we receive in salvation of the Holy Spirit guarantees uh, that it's going to be brought to completion in the last day. Yeah, it's so this the idea of this of the guarantee. You know, you go to a yard sale and you find some larger item that you want to pick up and it costs a hundred dollars, but you only have twenty dollars in your pocket. What do you do? Well, you give them twenty bucks and say, "Can you hold this?" Usually they do, and the reason they do is because they know you're not going to, you know, cheap people who go to <laughs> yard sales like me, uh, we're not going to give up twenty dollars that easily. We're going to be back with the rest of it. Uh, so, so, you know, that's, that's the idea here of a down payment and the Holy Spirit that's given to us is this down payment, this guarantee that we'll get the rest. Yeah, we'll get the, we'll get the, the full expression, the glorified expression here, resurrection life with Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 6, he who began a good work in you, uh, through union with Christ, regeneration, he will perfect it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be involved in this perfecting process, which is completed at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of 1 Thessalonians 5. Next verse. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, that's when perfection takes place, but not before. Faithful is he who calls you. He will bring it to pass. Hebrews 7, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to inter- to make intercession for them. So, so the idea, it's the power of God that is causing us to, pre- to persevere. And the reason we know that we will persevere is because he always lives to make intercession for us and to keep us in the faith. Jude, again, we come back to this, these verses, those who are called, Beloved in God the Father are kept for Jesus Christ and he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. And so we have a, a, a robust collection of texts here in this, in the New Testament scriptures that absolutely state that once a person has begun this, this process 
uh, whereby we are brought to the glorified state. Uh, we'll never, we'll never get thrown off the bus. Uh, we're never, we're, we're always going to continue on and it will be brought to pass. It might be an ugly trip if we, if we, if we, uh, engage in sin, uh, routinely along the way, but we'll get there because God will preserve us and we will persevere. Okay. There are a lot of other doctrines that support this idea of eternal security as well. The attributes of God, I think, uh, that we've talked about in previous, uh, previous discussions here come to bear. God is a faithful God. Faithful is he who calls you. He will bring it to pass. So the idea here is that so long as God is who he says he is, a faithful God, he will make sure that you are preserved. So it's God's character that's at stake in this issue. So if it is possible then for us to lose our salvation, then, then we ought to be doubting at this point the faithfulness of God because it, because God roots it in that. Okay. God will preserve you because he's a faithful God. The omnipotence of God, I think, also is at stake. Believers are protected by the power of God, which is an infinite power, right? Uh, there is, and, and that's why we find in, in Romans that nothing can pry us away from the power of God because it is, it is, it is a, it, it is a strength uh, that cannot be rivaled in this universe. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The providence of God, I think, is in view as well. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of son, his son. So if, if God elected you, if God, if God chose you, then he also predestined your sanctification and ultimate conformity to the image of his son, ultimate perfection. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, those whom he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he perfected. He brought to this state of glorification. So there's this, this, this providence of God. We often, uh, you know, park on verse 28, right? We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called. And it is a general principle, of course. Uh, we can, we can use that, that text very broadly within our, within our with our Christian experience. At the same time, the, the the precise context here is the providence of God that directs us to our final salvation. And that's a great promise for us. So the character of God is at stake in this this question, also the providence of God, and and then also the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, if we understand truly what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross and in his his resurrection, we understand that that the nature of salvation has to be permanent. Firstly, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. If, in fact, Christ has fully expiated sin, he's removed the guilt permanently and, and absorbed it in himself, he's fully satisfied God's wrath on the behalf of all true believers, and he did this on the cross. Um. This guarantees that believers can never face the penalty for sin. Because if Jesus absorbed the entirety of the penalty in himself, there is no more judgment to be spent upon us. It's gone. It's done. 
It's absorbed by Jesus Christ. And there's no way that God can keep us out of heaven if ultimately at this point. Because the penalty has been paid. Okay. And so, so the idea of losing your salvation is very foreign to the atonement of Jesus Christ because you'd have to say, okay, Jesus died for our sins and he took away the entirety of the guilt, but you know, but somehow I, I got it back. Uh, that doesn't work. Jesus absorbed the guilt. He absorbed the guilt. He ex- expiated the sin, uh, the guilt. And so, and so for that reason, there's no guilt left. There's no basis for God punishing me further because all of the punishment has been poured out on Jesus Christ. The entirety of the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ and has been completely uh, been absorbed by him. So there's nothing left. Okay. And some texts, I think uh, that bear this out. John five twenty four. he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life, which by nature of its eternality means it can't be taken away. It's permanent and does not, I can say cannot come into judgment because he has passed out of death unto life. Okay. Romans eight, who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. That there's, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because he died. And he removed the guilt. Yes, and also was raised. And stands at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Okay? And because he ever lives to make intercession for us, he is able, uh, as, as, as Hebrews, Hebrews, Hebrews says, to save forever those who come to God by faith. And so the substitutionary atonement of Christ here, the work of Christ in fully satisfying the just demands of God for sinners uh, means that there's nothing left uh, to keep to 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 consign us to hell or keep us out from of heaven. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ, which in which we share, right? We share in the resurrection of God means that we are already alive. The old man is dead; the new man has come to life, and so this new man cannot ever revert to some sort of previous state. The old man has been set aside. It's been destroyed. The new man lives. And so it's impossible then for that state of affairs to be reversed. Okay? So we find here that because of the resurrection of Christ, because I live, you shall live too. In fact, the, the whole point of Romans 6 is just as Christ died, was buried, and rose again, so also you died, were buried, and were raised to walk in newness of life. In fact, that's, that's the, 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 the formula we almost always use when we, uh, uh, engage in baptism, right? Okay. Because that, that's the picture, right? We died. Okay. We emerged. And we're new creatures in Christ. Uh, so the, so there's no, there's no reversing that. Okay. Romans five, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through 
the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, will be saved by his life. I mean, it, it it's it's happened. There's no undoing this. Romans 6, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be like, like him in the, uh, we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. First Peter 1, God has caused us uh, to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade, fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. I think sometimes we shortchange the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know uh, we, we tend to, we tend to concentrate on the cross of Christ. And it's one of those things where I, I, I'm not trying to minimize the cross of Christ. Believe me, uh, that's 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 not my goal here. But if you look through the New Testament, particularly the New Testament epistles, there is a greater emphasis on the resurrection of Christ than on the death of Christ. And there's good reason for that. Because through the resurrection of Christ, we participate in the life of God. Uh, we are new creatures in Christ. We are alive, and and it, and, it, and it ties then with this idea of regeneration. Um. If, in fact, all that happened when we got saved was that there was some sort of a legal transfer, then we might look at that and say, well, a legal transfer can be undone. You know, it happens all the time, right? You know, you, you, you go and you can annul your marriage, right? You know, as you have, you were, you were married legally and the next day you can go in and you can be unmarried legally. Um, but there's more that goes on in, salvation than just a legal transfer there is actually an experimental change the old man died the new man sprang to life just as christ rose from the dead and so that that can't be undone right you know if you know you know you know i suppose I, i saw a couple of you had your dogs here you know uh, I, I imagine that most of you have had a situation. If you have a dog now, you had a dog and it died. And then you, after, after a while, you got a new one, right? Okay. And so there it is. So, so now you got a new dog. You, you think fondly of the old dog, but, but he's dead. He's gone. You, you can never undo that. Death is a permanent thing. Okay. And so the death of the old man in definitive sanctification and the springing to life of the new man, I think is, is, is just a really strong argument for the fact that we can never lose this. Okay. Now you can never revert to that former state. It's impossible. Okay. And then also, as we've, we've mentioned here a couple times already, the intercession of Jesus Christ. So the whole work of Jesus Christ is interceding. He is also able to save forever those who draw near to him through faith, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So intercession here. And this is the whole high priestly work of Christ. Uh, we tend to think of the, uh, uh, the, the high priestly work of Christ as the sacrifice and don't want to minimize again that that's a very important part of what's going on. But the whole work of Jesus Christ, you know, remember John, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those who believed in me. Okay. So, so those who have actually been brought into the family of God are the subject and object of Christ's intercessory high priestly work, uh, which is always effective. 
It's always effective. We also find the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, to be a, a, a good harbinger of, of preservation by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed for the day of redemption. We already talked about that. Other facets of uh, soteriology tie in uh, to preservation as well. Election. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I won't cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all those he has given to me, you know, which is code for the elect, that of all the elect, I will not fail to get any of them. I will raise them up in the last day. So if, in fact, there is a doctrine of election, these are the people that God will save, then it's going to happen. It, it, it's impossible that it wouldn't happen. We saw this again in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew. Remember that foreknowledge here is this synonym for, for election. Those whom he elected, he brought to conformity and to the point of glorification. So election and predestination guarantee then uh, that uh, this will come to a, a completion. Definitive sanctification, again, we've also talked about that. By one offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified, and then this whole idea in Romans six: if you died, you can't undie. Okay, you know, that that's that's I mean that's the beauty of it. You can never undie, and uh, so it's impossible for you to revert to that former state. Okay, and I think even just the terms death, that the, the finality of that word, and also the the finality of eternal life means that it has to have ultimate implications, okay? If you have eternal life, it can't be temporary life. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it can't, it can't be both, okay? If you've got eternal life, it's eternal. So it's nature. And in union with Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So any, any questions here about the positive statement here of, uh, of, uh, uh, preservation, eternal security? We're going to come into some problem texts here, but uh, uh, I think the, uh, the the evidence here for uh, preservation is very robust. Very robust. And not not what you just said. I just wanted to note quickly, without discussing it at all, but back to page forty-seven on uh, antinomian Arminianism. I I picked up a, a hint of that uh, at Tennessee Temple. Yeah. Uh, that, that there was just that they made a, such a big emphasis on, well, he made a profession. Kind of like, well, he made a profession. So that's it, you know, and the, my guy might have denied Christ or whatever, you know, but I just, uh, you know, uh, anyway, I, I'm not trying to get down on my alma mater, but it just, you know, you know, it's good going through these things and being able to see uh, maybe error, you know, in the past. Yeah. yeah and I think that, that that that's why I said that's such a, a an insidious position because I think it insulates people from the gospel. So, you know, you how many people have you known who, you know, you, you try and give them the gospel and they'll say something like, hey, I remember that when I was a kid, I went to... I went to vacation Bible school and I, I, I did that go forward thing. So I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. And it's like, Oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Salvation is not that they just went forward and, 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 and said some sort of formulaic prayer. That's not it. You know, that, that, that's not what 
redemption is all about. Uh, but they've been insulated. You know, you, you, you can't actually give them the gospel anymore effectively because they, they think they're safe. And, uh, that is a, that's a, that's a, uh, yeah, it's a problematic position. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, with a few minutes we have left, let's talk about some of these problem passages. There's a, there's a number of passages. I think perhaps the uh, warning passages in Hebrews are perhaps the most, uh, aggressive of these. Uh, this, uh, particularly, uh, the one in Isaiah, excuse me, Hebrews 6. Uh, verses four through six that talk about, you know, if, if someone, you know, maybe I'll pull it out here. But, uh, Hebrews six, you know, if there is someone who has, uh, uh, first been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, powers of the coming age. If they fall away, it's impossible that they should be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. Okay, And so if you look look at that verse, it almost looks as though you would say, okay, here's a person who, you know, got saved and then walked away. And, uh, the, and, and the implication seems to be that a person can lose their salvation. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, there's, there's even, uh, even, even Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, remember, he says, I, I beat my body, bring it into subjection, lest if I get to the uh, last judgment, I might actually be found to be a castaway, you know, some, someone who had a, who had a false profession, who's been faking it the whole time. And, and you say, okay, so, so the apostle Paul might have lost his salvation. Okay. I don't think any of those passages teach that. Okay. Of course, this is, this is a prime example here of the analogy of scripture. We're comparing scriptures with scriptures and having them inform each other. And so as we look at these verses, we say, okay, so what is meant here? Well, I say here, these passages and others like them warn professing believers that failure to persevere in faith, sound doctrine, and good works are indications that true conversion never really occurred. They don't properly warn against the loss of salvation, but against self-deception among professing believers who never had salvation in the first place. Uh Hebrews 6, I think, particularly, uh, is probably a reference uh, to uh, the Jews who, who uh, you know, were, were, were privy uh, to the, to the uh, life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And these people here, who they tasted the heavenly gifts, not so much that they got saved, but they actually, you know, rubbed shoulders with Jesus Christ. Uh, they... Uh, they shared the Holy Spirit. That is, they, they saw the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, demonstrating that he was the Messiah and committed what is right, the unpardonable sin, right? Because they attribute the, the work of the Holy Spirit to something else. So they, they tasted the work of the Holy, they, they tasted the goodness of the word of God. They heard Jesus speak and saw the powers of the coming age. They, they saw the miracles that he did. If those people, fall away. If the, if those people refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and fall away, there is no hope for them. And I think that's that really parallels what happens in Matthew 12, right? 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the only other occasion in the whole New Testament that talks in these terms of, of finality. Remember what happens in Romans 12? If you commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you know, all manner of sins can be forgiven, but this one, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there's, there's, there's no forgiveness. Okay. It's the same language that's used in Hebrews six. And I think it's a parallel passage. Okay. These are people who actually saw Jesus Christ manifested on earth as Messiah through gifts and, and miracles and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If a person looks at that and says, nah, I won't believe in him. In fact, what he was doing was probably satanic. There's no hope for them. So it's not a statement here that they got saved, but that they had the maximum amount of exposure to the Christian gospel and turned away. Okay. I think that's the, that's the case in all of these passages. It's a warning here that if in fact you walk away, then this demonstrates that you never were a believer. There's also these passages of the sin leading to death, which we just, <laughs> we just already talked about here. And why I say here, while there's sins that can confirm a person in unbelief, they can be committed only by unbelievers. So, uh, so those who, uh, so there are, so there are, there are sins of, of apostasy that can be committed only by believers. There are also sins leading to death that can be committed by believers. Uh, but, uh, they are there to prevent apostasy. And then finally, we also have passages that deal with assurance rather than security. So it is, True that you can never lose your salvation, but it is possible for a believer to lose the assurance of his salvation. They're separate things, right? The security, the eternal security and preservation of the believer are objective truths that, that are, that are absolutely true. Okay. But assurance is the question of, did that happen to me? my personal confidence that those objective facts are my facts or if they're just facts that are generally out there. Okay. And so, so the question is, did that happen to me? And you can lose your assurance as a, as a true believer, you can lose your assurance. In fact, we've, we've said that that is actually a built-in mechanism. It's, it's actually designed by God to bring people back, uh, to uh to the uh to to the church to the uh uh to the uh to the uh, a place of of blessing um and forgiveness and repentance okay so there are passages for for in fact the first john is filled uh with passages that give tests of genuine faith and what is lost here is not so much salvation but it's assurance uh now consistent failure should cause a person to examine himself to see whether he's genuinely in the faith uh, but, you know, bouts of sin and return and, and that in some ways strengthens our insurance, uh, assurance because I sin, but, you know, the Holy Spirit brings to bear great conviction on my mind and I, and I repent and come back. That, that actually gives me the assurance that it, it really happened to me. It really happened to me because I'm responding the way I ought to. Okay. And in practical value, I think that's probably pretty obvious what the, uh, the, the value of preservation is. Well, eternal security eliminates fear and despair, gives joy and relief to the believing heart. 
transforms fear-induced obedience to enjoyable service. So therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So I think uh, preservation is a very pleasant doctrine to speak of. Uh, uh, but as we're going to see next week when we talk about perseverance, it is not without uh, the, the the effort uh, that we have to put into the process. We part, we're partners with God in this. He preserves, we persevere. And so that'll be our topic as we start up next time. Any, any questions on eternal security as we wrap things up? Okay. We will see you one last time.